I'm Pat. Hi, I'm Pat Payne, and I'm going to read today Acts 2, verses 1 to 13. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven, like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then, what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and begun speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear in their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be? they exclaimed. These people are from, are all from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Capra, Condia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Theraga, Palmyra, Egypt, and the areas of Libya around Cyrus, and visitors from Rome both Jews and converts to Judaism, Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. And we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. But others in the cloud ridiculed them, saying, they're just drunk, that's all. Thank you, Pat. That was uh, adorable, as everything that Pat does is. And I couldn't think of a better person for Pastor Tom to have asked to do that scripture reading, as Pat is one who I believe is continually filled with the Spirit. You spend any amount of time with her, and it just rubs off on you. So it's pretty amazing and powerful. So so thankful that she did that for us. Um, and thank you to uh, Jeremy for not making our meeting this morning, our prayer meeting, all about your birthday. In fact, we went a whole hour and I didn't even know that it was. You can tell that Steve and I don't do Facebook because it never occurred to us that it was your birthday. So um, I can't think of a better person to ignore for all of that either. So you see, you you can get it back too. You give it to Caleb. I got Caleb's back. So I'm going to come up here and stand up for him a little bit so he delivers me great things at my home so i gotta stand up for caleb (laughs) thank you to the ladies too for their presentation for uh women behind the line as soon as i heard about this ministry idea i just thought it was amazing and 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 not only do we bring it to the church for it to be an opportunity for us to pray in support of the thing that is building and developing, but also for you to have your own imagination stirred. What is the thing that the Lord has put me in proximity to, to address, to solve, to give my time and resources and my giftings to? Under the guise, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And so it's another presentation, another opportunity of what people are doing as they're being led by the Spirit of God, which is very poignant to what we're talking about in our text this morning as we come to Acts 2. 
Uh, I often have um, no shortage of uh, tools and resources out there to help pastors learn how to strategize their church, help their church to grow and become healthier and bigger and more attractive to the outsiders in various ways and stuff. There's all kinds of suggestions, and, and many of them are good, and many of them are helpful. Some you know, just aren't. And uh, it seems like it's really built on secular marketing strategies and all those kinds of things. And so there's no shortage of things to sift through. The problem is, is that as church leaders go further down that path, the more they feel like it's something they can manipulate and control and things that they can um, just tweak this a little bit. And then the people will respond to it really well. Just do this a little bit more and they'll give more money or any of these kinds of manipulative tactics. And I don't think many church leaders start down that road with the intention of that being the outcome, but it just kind of inevitably takes over. The problem with all of that is that we're forgetting that there is the third person of the triune Godhead known as the Holy Spirit who without him, there's no life in the church. There's no health in the church. There's no unity amongst the saints. There's no joy in our midst without his presence. And as a, as a, um, a third person of the Godhead and actually, yes, God himself, not a lesser than the three. We know from scripture and our study of it and doctrine and putting all the pieces together, we know amongst many things that the spirit comes into our life to illuminate truth, to make literally the truths of the scriptures of the word of God come off the page and make sense to us finally. I don't know how many people have said, boy, it was like before I came to Christ, it was all kind of gibberish and, and just words on a page. And then after I came to the Lord, things started sinking in and making sense. That's the role of the Holy Spirit in your life. He seals the believer. He, he puts that stamp of, of ownership and protection and you belong to God now. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He convicts us of our sin. There's all those little nudges in our hearts and that kind of, Hey, are you, are you listening to the glory of God? Are you listening to the holiness of God? How is your life matching up to that right now? How is this thing or this thought or this whatever? That's the Holy Spirit ministering inside of you. And as I already said, the Holy Spirit brings you and I together. It gives us common ground on things that maybe we otherwise wouldn't be united on. But because we both love the Lord Jesus Christ and we're united in him, the Spirit brings our fellowship and our unity even tighter. And as we're going to see from our text this morning, the Spirit empowers our proclamation of who God is. He, he is the, the fuel, if you will, to the engine of telling the world about the love of Jesus Christ. What we're going to see as we come to Acts chapter 2 is a shift, not just in the story that we're hearing, but really a fundamental or a historical shift in the Christian faith as we see this next phase, if you will, of God's redemptive story. In chapter 1, the disciples were told to wait for the Spirit to arrive. Remember, Jesus said, hunker down here for a bit. Don't leave Jerusalem. The Spirit is coming as promised, as you've heard from me in the past. Chapter 2, he arrives. They receive him, as we just heard from Pat's reading. In chapter 1, it's about the saints being equipped. Jesus is giving them a clear mission. He's giving them a strategy of how the gospel is going to start here in Jerusalem. Then it's going to spread out to Judea and Samaria. You will eventually be my witnesses in all the world. 
So they get their mission, their marching orders from Jesus. They see Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Father, which is still part of the strategy. It's part of the overall grand design of God to have the Son sitting at the right hand of the Father to orchestrate, to manage, to empower all of the things that will happen in the age of the church. And we said that they were waiting differently. They were gathered together to pray, not just pray, God send the Spirit, God send the Spirit. Jesus said he's coming. So just go and pray the prayers, we said. So get back to your worship of God. Get back to your communion and your fellowship one with another. And the Spirit will come. Chapter 2 then. He arrives and he empowers the mission. It's almost like in the first chapter, they're building the engine in the garage. And in the second chapter, someone shows up with the gas can and says, let's put some fuel in this puppy and get it fired up. That's what's about to happen. Chapter one, we said Jesus holds him back. Chapter two, spirit sends him out. Chapter one, Christ ascends. Chapter two, the spirit falls. All of this change is happening and it's, and it's, it's the kind of thing that if we could spend more and more time on it, I encourage you to spend more time digging into this part of our church history because of all of the connections. We'll touch on some of them, but the, the story is so deep and so rich. I'd hate for you to miss some of these key aspects. This again is another phase in the redemptive story of God because back in Genesis when sin had plagued mankind and we were guilty, we were guilty of, of trading in God for lesser gods that we stopped worshiping the creator for the creation. God then enacts the plan that he knew he would enact, which was that he would send a savior. And in Genesis three, he says that the savior will come and he will take, he will take the fight to the cross. He will bruise the head of the serpent who we know is Satan and the head of the serpent will, will bruise the savior's heel. He says this in Genesis three. And then God visits with Moses and he says, here's my law made special for my people to to um, introduce my character, to introduce all the things that are true of my heart. And I want you to be separate and distinct. I want, I want the Israelites to be separate from the rest of the world. You will be my special people and you will receive my grace if you live according to my law. But of course, we couldn't do that. God's children couldn't do that. That was really the point of the law. Yes, it's true. That is who God is and what he cares about. But it was such a steep um, expectation. God knew mankind would never be able to keep it perfectly. Well, and why would he do that? To point to the need, to the cross, to the Savior. So he sends Jesus, who lives this life perfectly on our behalf, because we kept messing it up. And then he sat, he allows him to be sacrificed on the cross for us, paying for our sin debt. And then, of course, resurrecting, beating death, conquering our sin and, and guaranteeing us a place in heaven in glory with him for all of eternity. Now it's the age of getting this message out all over the place to impact the world for the next at least two millennia. And so he sends the spirit to empower the process. And as we saw from our text, the Holy Spirit came to fill the church. It's part of the actual physical language in the text, but it's also the part of the filling of the believer that, that the Holy Spirit will do continually throughout the rest of our days. So as we saw from Pat's reading earlier that this is happening all on a very specific day. This is the day of Pentecost. And I've said in hindsight, 
it would seem that God had a plan that that was going to be, it would seem, of course God had a plan, but he was going to do it on the day of Pentecost. So even though Jesus left 10 days earlier and he said to the disciples, pray for the arrival of the spirit, God's plan would be that the spirit would come on the day of Pentecost. The disciples didn't know that. They weren't told that, Hey, go occupy yourselves for 10 days and see what happens. No. He said, go and pray, and in a little while, the promised spirit will come, comes on the day of Pentecost. And there's a lot of really cool connections with why this particular day. We don't have the time to go into all of them, but let me try to give you just a surface understanding of it so that you can see how the Lord's plan were, were, was, in, uh, was in process on this day that the spirit arrives. The Jews referred to this as the Feast of Weeks. This was a festival given to them as a people by the Lord. It was one of the three harvest festivals. They were to get together and celebrate. They would call them wave offerings. You know, something you wave before the Lord. You'd celebrate, God, you've been so good to us for giving us the bounty of the land so that we can actually fill our stomachs, provide for our families, and earn our living. And so they would come as once a year uh, to celebrate these different harvest festivals. And Pentecost happens to be the one sandwiched in the middle. And it was called the Feast of Weeks. And it was to celebrate the first fruits of what they were taking in. First fruits is just that expression of the first of what was to come in. And so they would celebrate that publicly. It was a, it was a party. It was a celebration. It was a, it was an opportunity to enjoy the goodness of God in the lives that they were living. So it's, it's high energy and it's, and it's fun and it's a reminder in the fact that he is their God and they are his people. Over time though, this became a different kind of religious celebration that also incorporated the anniversary of of God giving the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. So as God comes down and meets him on, on Mount Sinai, this is after a major demonstration. He comes in smoke and fire and he tells the children of Israel to come up to the mountain, but don't touch the mountain. You stand off at a distance. I am coming to meet you. And he comes in massive, dramatic fashion, like earthquake, lightning storm, smoke and everything like that. So that the people are terrified. So they're terrified in the presence of their loving God who is coming to make himself known so that they can meet him. I'm going to say meet him, but they're not meeting him face to face. And it's on the heels of that that he tells Moses, you come up the mountain. I have some words I'm going to share with you. And so he does, and he is given the law. And so now the people look back and they say, this is the time when God identified us as a special people. He had given us a law that would separate us from everybody else. And he gave us very clear direction and instruction on how we were to live. So Pentecost is a time that they're celebrating that. You're starting to see that this could be a connection in both of those ways. In fact, on multiple levels, the arrival of the spirit on this day works for so many different reasons. If you just look at it strictly from a harvest standpoint and you're celebrating the first fruits of what God brings, then as the church is getting started, we're going to see that about 3000 people are going to be added to it like that. Talk about a harvest. I mean, church is getting ready to explode. We already saw through that very cruel list of locations that Pat had to read for us. She's so brave. Like I said, she's spirit-filled. And, and, and it's very, very difficult to get through all those things. And I'm like, I'm glad she's reading it, not me. In fact, you'll see, I'm skipping it in the message this morning. That God was going to send that. This, this harvest was going to start coming in, and they were planting seeds everywhere. It was about to spread. 
So even just from a harvest standpoint, that celebration means that the spirit was coming to show that this is a new age and a new era. And the souls that will be added to the kingdom of God are going to come in in droves. So which is a pretty cool connection. But if you think of it just from the standpoint of the arrival of the law in Mount Sinai, I mean, we are always saying that the gospel presents the difference between what we're supposed to do to earn God's favor versus what has been done for us because we failed at it. That isn't it interesting that on the celebration of the arrival of the, the heap of rules and laws and all the things that just, you know, mankind really couldn't do because we were sinful is at the same time it's commemorated that the Spirit would come and say, this is about the work of Christ. Put your faith in Him. Let Him be the payment for your sin. Stop trying to over-earn it. Stop trying to work for it. Start trying to sweat it out. This is, this is a gift from God. It's an arrival of the grace of God. Of course, the text tells us again, we saw that it was, they were riding in a Honda last chapter says that we're all together in one place. It's been 10 days since Jesus left. And I try to play that movie out in my mind a little bit and think, you know, it's one thing to be anticipating something that's never happened to you before. And you've already heard the stories of how God showed up at Sinai. And you're like, what's the spirit going to do when he arrives? How epic is this going to be? And there's got to be some human fear there. Even if you're faithful and you're praying together and you're celebrating and you're anticipating, there's got to be a part of like, but we've never done this before. What would the anxiety look like? What would the anticipation look like? What does the loss feel like of having Jesus now gone over a week and thinking, is he, is he not coming back? And when is the spirit coming? When is all this happening? And so these 10 days, I'm sure, have some amount of anxiety attached to it, even while they worship. So we go back to chapter uh, to verse two in our second chapter here. Suddenly there came from heaven. A sound like a mighty rushing wind. That's like a mighty rushing wind. I don't know why we always have to point that out, but we do because it's not like their hair was blowing everywhere necessarily and stuff, but there was an incredible sound that would draw their attention and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. The narrative is a little bit blurred for us here because they're back in the upper room, back in the space that was provided for them. The 120 could gather in this private setting. And so they're there praying, worshiping, celebrating communion, doing all those things. And that's when the spirit arrives, that sound of the mighty rushing wind. But eventually we're going to see that they are before the people in the temple. So the spirit's move must have led them out from their place and down into the temple square where the devout Jews would hear them. Verse three, what happens is divided tongues as a fire appeared to them. This isn't, I don't think like tongues split down the middle. It says divided. It's like a separate tongue removed and kind of placed over them in an image. All right. So it's a supernatural, miraculous image of a tongue uh, in fire. So it says that a divided tongue as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. There's a bit of a distinguishing I'd like to make here. Again, this isn't something that we can really break down and spend a lot of time on. But oftentimes the phrase baptism of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit are used interchangeably. But I believe them to be different doctrinally speaking. And so baptism of the Spirit as we so often hear, is a little bit different, is actually quite a bit different from what we continue to refer to as the being filled with the Spirit. 
Baptism is something that in this particular instance is something that the Lord does kind of like behind the scenes. Uh, we're going to see it here in a second, but there are things that God does as we are placed in the family of God that only God can do. And they're just steps or processes or things that just happen at the moment of salvation. Baptism of the spirit is what God does for us by placing us within the sufferings and the sacrifice and the family of God. A baptism in our sense, we think of it as just getting dunked in water and being lifted out. This baptism is the spirit is engulfing us and placing us in the work and the family of God. Paul is illustrating this in many different passages in the New Testament in particular. In Romans 6, he says, We're buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. So that's an aspect of Christ's life being laid down into the grave, if you will, and we joined him in that through this baptism of the Spirit. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his... We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So we would no longer be enslaved to sin. If you've ever wondered, why is it that Christians practice baptism like from a dunking standpoint and coming in and out of water and everything? It's an image or a symbol to portray exactly what Paul just described here. That we were, that we were joined in death with Christ. He died on our behalf and we somehow get to miraculously get the benefit of his death without us actually physically dying from it. And so we are joined in his death and then we are raised in his resurrected new life. This is the thing that God is doing for us as believers behind the scenes. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is we're linked to that act. In verse, uh, in first Corinthians 12, Paul continues, he says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, into one body of believers, past, present, and future, that we are all part of the church. Jews or Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So it's important. I don't want to overpick on our terms and that sometimes it's a little bit difficult to over apply things that we hear in church today or in churches today as how somehow people have all their meanings figured out. I don't want to be, you know, picking on uh, statements and things that we've heard. It's just an opportunity for us to biblically set the record straight. Baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is something that MacArthur commented on, too. It's a sovereign, single, unrepeatable act on God's part. And it's no more of an experience than are its companions, justification and adoption, to name a couple of very important ones. Justification, again, continuing on our doctrine, is us getting set right with God, even though we are in sin and error. The grace of God, the blood of Jesus Christ, justifies us, makes us right with God. I don't know how this symbol signifies being made right with God, but my mind always wants to do it. I apologize. Well, once we're made right with God, we're justified, and then we're also adopted into the family of God. I don't know about you, but when I'm justified, I didn't feel necessarily justified, like, oh, there it is, just happened. Or when I was adopted, oh, there it is, it's just happened. I continue to feel the effects of it. I continue to experience the deeper connection of being made right with God or being brought into fellowship with my brothers and sisters because I've been joined into the same family. But that's all happening as a gift of God, as the work of God is taking place. 
You don't see baptism necessarily being commanded of us to do, not water baptism, baptism of the Spirit, the same way that you see filling of the Spirit. We might remember back in Ephesians 5, uh, Paul said, don't get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be, there's your command, be filled with the Spirit. So Paul isn't going to command us to do something that is just something that we have to wait for. The filling of the Spirit is something that somehow we have a part to play in, and I'll explain some of that here in a moment. The, the language of that Ephesians 5 verse is a little bit clunky. That's why it's been kind of tightened up a little bit. But what it really means is, and be continually kept being filled or something along those lines. In other words, be filled over and over and over again. The baptism of the spirit being placed and being, being um, um, uni- unified in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and the family of believers is a thing that has happened to everyone who has come to Christ and receive forgiveness of their sins. I hope that distinction helps a little bit. So we've already talked about what baptism of the Spirit is. What is filling of the Spirit? What are we talking about? What are we seeing on display with these with these apostles, with these disciples here? Now, prior to Pentecost, and and in some cases a little bit after, there's some various scenarios that are gonna we're gonna see in Acts that are a little hard for me to make a tight little presentation on because the Spirit is doing what the Spirit is going to do. What God is always able to do whenever he wants to do it because he's God. He's going to do it in some unique ways as the church is being birthed. It's the only way I'm going to package that right now. But all throughout biblical history, the spirit would come and rest on an individual for a moment in time. We would say, and the spirit came upon them and this happened. So there'd be a resting on the spirit would come and visit and then move on. But Ezekiel said that the spirit one day would come. This is how it says it here in uh, 36. And I will put my spirit within you. This is new language and a new thought for the Israelite. They're saying, wait, you mean he's going to come to stay? And and he's going to stay in here somehow within me? They knew the spirit would be on the move. They knew the spirit of God would rest on and then move on, but they didn't know that it would be a permanent dwelling. This is what's happening in, in Acts chapter 2, that the Spirit would come to stay permanently. And, and Ezekiel said, or what he prophesied of God, is that the Spirit would come and cause us to walk in God's statues and be careful to obey His rules. The meaning of being filled with the spirit is the word itself means influence or being furnished with something. So we'd say being furnished with God and he's moved in. As we see the old, the new Testament play out in the instruction, it, it means being controlled by the spirit as we yield ourselves to a command. Now we're starting to get into that mysterious element of there's something that you and I can do about the filling of the spirit. This is the mystery that's a, that that there's a work of God that's happening. These guys were told go back and and pray and and wait and fellowship and commune with one another. The Spirit will come. The power of God will come when the power of God's going to come. They didn't know it would be on Pentecost, but God did. So He sent the Spirit when He determined was going to happen. That's in God's control. But there was a part of the readying of their hearts and the readying, the preparedness of their lives. So that when the spirit came, remember what we said last week, the spirit came upon maturing apostles. 
those that were striving after God and, 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 and chasing after his will to a deeper level. They were readying themselves for the spirit's arrival. We're, we're seeing glimpses of what it means for you and I to be filled with the spirit. Are we, are we paving the runway for, are we preparing the way for the spirit to have his way in our lives? Well, we know that the demonstration of the Spirit's arrival in this particular instance was through speaking other languages. That this gift of tongues had fallen upon them. Not only did the gift of tongues, but this image of a tongue in fire, which I have no idea what that's supposed to look like, but it sounds really cool and I hope we get to see the movie. I want to see how all this played out. But specific to Acts chapter 2, we are talking about known languages. And I am going to admit to you that a lot of what I'm going to say this morning is assuming that you've come from different backgrounds, that you've had other church experiences, that you have perhaps friends or cousins or somebody who's in a different church who practices the gift of tongues maybe differently than we do or don't hear. There's an aspect of which of being in a free church that I'm able to be a little bit somewhere down the middle, comfortably vague on certain things, because that's one of the, the, the great bragging points of an evangelical free church is when God has certain things that are minored on, we don't make them majors, and we don't try to have a lot of division and fighting over the things that still are debatable in the scripture, but the essentials that are in the scripture, in particular the essence of the gospel and things, we will go to our grave defending. And so there's some from, there's some freedom that I have in this with not having to say to you whether or not I believe tongues exist today or not. And in fact, I don't really intend to land that plane specifically, um, but give some, some pretty helpful thoughts and cautions, I hope. We have to talk about this thing. What does it mean that they were speaking in these other languages? Well, we know from the text, it's qualified here for us, that these languages were known. So that's the first place to camp out on is that there was a legit language already in existence that was being spoken by people that didn't know the language. So the supernatural aspect is I wouldn't know how to speak French, but all of a sudden I'm speaking to a French person and I'm saying French things. And the French person's going, oui, oui, what is going on? You know, I don't know what they say because I don't speak French. Baguette. I don't know. It's just something. So they're saying, I'm hearing you. You're speaking my language, but I didn't think you knew this language. And, and maybe at the time, the, the apostles were saying, yeah, we didn't know we knew the language, or they think they're just speaking in their language and it's coming out, I don't know. But it's definitely a gift of speech. It's not just a, a miracle of hearing. It's not like they're saying one thing and then somebody's hearing something else. The text tells us that they were speaking a known language even without the previous ability to do so, which would be quite jaw-dropping. And this is the most detailed explanation we get of the mechanics of spoken tongues as a gift of the Spirit than any other passage of Scripture. If you know your Bibles, you know that 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 deals a lot with the gifts in general, but then gets very specific from a practical standpoint on what tongues are for, how they're to be exercised and used, but we don't get a detailed explanation of what they are. We make inferences based on how Paul is approaching it, because he says, if you walk in, and some of this I'm probably jumping ahead, if you walk, if, if an outsider walks into your church and you're speaking an unknown, unknown language, won't they think you're talking crazy? 
So he's giving us a hint that there might be an aspect of tongues that is not the thing that you and I would discern or be able to hear. Again, I'm going off of inferences. And I know that that aspects of Christianity have made a full doctrine and practice out of what they believe to be specifics here. I don't see those specifics. What I see is the specific in Acts 2 of they're speaking a known language without the previous ability to do so, and everybody is hearing this known language, their own separate known language, by the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, as you look closer at 1 Corinthians 13 and 14, much of what Paul is saying is from a of pulling the reins back on the use of tongues and the importance of tongues. He's trying to offer some constraints to it to say, let's be careful about how we exercise this gift. We don't see that in Acts 2. It's just run rampant with it, say the language, any hearer who wants to hear, that kind of thing. And it's going to um, have its impact. Again, just kind of on this side note jaunt a little bit, and we'll probably have to dig in a little bit deeper as we go through Acts, but for now, we got to set the stage. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14 what the purpose of these tongues are for. What is this gift for? He says in verse 21, he says, in the law it is written, this is a prophecy that this is going to happen, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are not a sign for believers, but for unbelievers. So we would say that in Acts chapter 2, what's happening is the unbeliever who needs to be proven that this Jesus of Nazareth really did start a legit movement, that he actually was the Messiah, and that these people that are following them aren't crazy. They see a demonstration of power like this, and they go, maybe he's real. So to the audience of unbelievers, tongues have an incredible power in this particular instance. But he says, while prophecy, which is the spoken truth to the, to the hearer, this is what God says. This is coming in a sense. I'm prophesying to you this morning as I'm teaching you the truths of the word of God and things that that is not a sign for unbelievers, but it's for us. It's for believers. It's for those who are already in the camp, if you will. That this word builds us up while the gift of tongues would build, would, would reach the unbeliever. And then again, just a little bit more on this. If you're hearing this in any circles that you've been in or you've been, and I'm trying to be sensitive to our different backgrounds, which I know there are many. And some of you who would say, hey, look, I've had experiences, I can't explain everything. This is not to talk you out of thinking that was real or that it is, isn't for today or anything. Haven't even gotten to that point yet. But to lay some groundwork on how we should treat this subject, let's do it biblically, first and foremost, not church doctrine, not experience. Let's see what the scripture says first and foremost about it. And Paul is saying that, that we should never be associating the gift of tongues with a proof of your salvation. This is one of the great abuses that I've seen in church culture um, over the last, I don't know for how long, but it's kind of interesting. I think the gift of tongues went away. It started to diminish and decrease even in the time of the apostles writing. It was starting to get emphasized less and less and nearly went non-existent only until recent centuries and the last one or two centuries where it started to resurrect and come back. 
And Paul is saying that these things would go away, but he actually takes us uh, to a place of understanding that if somebody says to you, if you were truly a believer, you would speak in an unknown language. Again, I already talked about 1 Corinthians 12 being the list of gifts, and it said to some, he gave the gift of tongues. And if the church is going to try to interpret, well, the tongues he was talking about here and there, they don't have a lot to go on. It's vague, and I think it's vague on purpose. Paul is saying, I'm so glad I speak in tongues more than any of you. He wasn't saying the gift is stupid. He's saying, I think we should really be careful about how we use it and how much emphasis we put on this thing. And I think it would be much clearer to us how the practice should be if if it were something that we were to be uh, all whipped up about today. A little bit of my own opinion in there. Romans 8, 9 says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. You, he's addressing an audience. He says, not those of you that have the gift. He's saying, you are in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If we have the spirit, there's no attaching to, and if you have the spirit, he'll show up like he did either in Acts 2 or some of the other examples that we're going to see like in Acts 19 and others. That is how God chose to move in that moment for a very specific and stated purpose for us in the text. My caution overall, whether you believe that tongues are still a a sign of, you know, often people refer to it as, a, as an angelic kind of communion language is between me and God. I think that that fits the um, the instruction that Paul gave us in, in 1 Corinthians. Make sure there's an interpreter present. Make sure it doesn't come across as looking crazy and unhinged and stuff. So some people are like, well, I believe in the gift and I exercise it, but it's a little bit kind of like between me and God. It's not showy. Then who am I to say? But my caution would be for all of us not to desire signs, wonders, and miracles from God that will compete with a quiet trust. I don't see enough in the scriptures that we should be going for this bigger ring of prize of personal experience that is either emotional, a little bit spooky, or something that makes us feel like we've touched the supernatural. Most of the emphasis, almost all of the emphasis I see in the scriptures is that we would give ourselves to the things that build a quiet trust without the need for the signs and the wonders and all of the um, sort of the physical slash spiritual proofs that God is real. Jesus even cautions and says, you know, it's a wicked generation who's dying for a sign here. Instead, I think we should desire the better, the always reliable, productive work of the spirit. Well, what's that supposed to look like? Galatians 5 passage we go back to all the time. It's such a great list for us to set ourselves straight. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Again, a little bit more of Brent's speculation and his personal opinion wrapped in this. But if if that list was happening in the lives of God's children, would anybody say, "Eh, I don't know, there's not enough, there's not enough Holy Spirit going on there. Why? Well, because they don't do all the other stuff that we think the Holy Spirit produces in their worship. After seeing people live by that list, would we say that the Spirit isn't present? 
I think that oftentimes we desire those touches and those moments because it kind of reminds us, oh, God is real. And, and I need those too. I need those little moments throughout my day. But the part of me that needs that is my flesh, not the spirit. The spirit is led by a quiet trust. The spirit is led by, I don't need all of the details spelled out for me. Jesus says, blessed are those who believe who haven't seen versus those who have. All right. We've said a lot on that and I've covered a lot of ground and I've got like five, six, seven, ten, ten minutes. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Secondly, the Holy Spirit came to reach the world. Let's go back to our text. Verse five. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Let me stop there and just say that the devout men are traveling from all of these dispersed areas that the Jews have found themselves in over time. And Hebrew is no longer their primary language. They're traveling from far away so they can participate in this festival. And I didn't look too closely to see what the requirement was, but these men were required to be a part of this festival. I didn't look to see if it was annually or once in their life they needed to make that pilgrimage or not. But most of them were there to be a part of the celebration, but also to honor their religious heritage and to fulfill that duty. And they were coming from every Roman-occupied, Roman-controlled area, uh, the known world and that sort of thing at the time. Verse 6, and at this sound, they heard that sound like a mighty rushing wind, so they came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans, which is a knock on the Galileans. They're, what they're saying is, are, are we serious that these uneducated bumbling idiots are speaking our language? This is how they looked at the um, Galileans specifically when it came to language, because they had a harder time getting some of these things out of their mouths. They tried learning some of these languages or they would try to speak in this kind of universal appeal and they couldn't get the guttural sounds right. They just came across as very uneducated and lower class. They were like, Galileans speaking our language? What's going on here? That was probably the more jaw-dropping aspect of it all because of their prejudice. And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? I love the personal response of this and the application of how am I speaking in my, how am I hearing in my language when I know they don't know how to speak it? I don't have to spend too much time here, but doesn't that take you back to the Tower of Babel the first time we see the languages all broken up and scattered? Mankind had gotten so arrogant that we can accomplish anything that we want. We could probably even reach the heavens. So let's build this tower and let's prove the strength of our humanity by reaching and touching God. God comes down and says, yeah, I know you're getting a little full of yourselves. I'm going to humble you by spreading out all the languages, confusing everybody by making you having to learn new things and hearing things poorly and stuff. So in their arrogance, God judged them by separating the languages. Now that the spirit is arriving in mercy and wanting to include all the people from all the nations, he's uniting them, not in one spoken physical language, but giving the gospel to all of these languages. He's bringing them together. He's reversing, in a sense, that curse that he gave, that judgment he gave in Genesis 11. Where the spirit arrives in mercy, God is uniting them. 
One, one little application I'd like us to see here is that maybe you need to hear this this morning, that God will speak the language of your heart in order to reach you. I'm not trying to say that God will will just tell you what you want to hear. But we have all been tuned to a condition in life or an experience in life or a culture in life that blocks us so often from the truth of who God is. He will go down any road in order to chase you. He will he will crack the code of your language and speak to your heart. It'll still be true about him, not just the things you need to hear about God, but the things that are true about him. He will speak in order to reach you. I see this as an incredible mercy of God to come down again. He says, you are my people. I'm starting in Jerusalem. There's strategy here. Yes, we're going to spread it to all these 13 regions. But there's, there's, there's heart in this. That God is saying, I loved you first. And I don't want you to miss what I'm about to do in the entire four corners of the world. I will speak the language you've become accustomed to speaking so that again you hear my mercy. Their reaction tells me that they were experiencing a very personal conviction. They, I love these words over and over. They kind of all mean the same thing as slight varying, you know, varying differences, I guess, but bewildered, amazed, astonished, perplexed, freaking out. This clearly was having a profound impact on what they were hearing personally. And they said, it's the mighty works of God is what they're shouting and proclaiming. Which again is another principle in this, is that when the Holy Spirit moves, the glory of God is revealed every time. Going back to that list of some of the things that that um, using the sign gifts and these big demonstrations of our faith and everything, they so often build up the individual. Even Paul warns against this. He says, sometimes these gifts puff you up instead of promoting the glory and the power and the goodness of God. If we go back to that Galatians 5 list, the fruit of the Spirit, it does nothing but knock us notches lower and lower and lower. And the whole time, God's amazing power being demonstrated in your life is raised higher and higher and higher. And what people need is they need the person of Jesus Christ. They don't need to be amazed by us. Their jaws don't need to drop because we're living this cool life or because I serve God that he's given me all the money I ever want or the perfect picture of a family or any of those kinds of things. My life isn't what's supposed to be on display. It's the life of Christ. That's the life they need to be introduced to. What he does is he demonstrates the power of God to everyone who's watching in the ways that they will clearly recognize and in the ways that will truly blow their mind. Right now in our culture, and it has been developing for some time, we've moved on from thinking that we're the source of our own problems. Now we've become a blaming culture. Everyone else is at fault for the experiences that I'm having in my life. And it's true to some extent that there are plenty of atrocities being done outside of the individual. There are plenty of victims, true victims in our world today, and the Lord sees them and has a heart for that. But for the most part, we've moved on from personal responsibility. We no longer think that the problem is brokenness inside of us. But the gospel brings us back to that every time. That our real issue is something that's broken and and, and apart from God inside of us. Imagine how hopeless it sounds to the person to think, my life will only get better when other people get their act together. Do we see that happening? Does that sound like a very hopeful future? No, the hope is the problem is in you. The brokenness is in you. And there's a savior who's come to rescue from that. 
He's already done the work. He's already won the victory. It's yours for the asking. That's where the hope is. So the question comes to us as we see what the Lord's doing in these apostles and he's astounding all of these hearers who have now walked away from the essential um, work of God by denying who the, who the Messiah is. The question is, in what ways does your life demonstrate the power of God? How does, this isn't meant to be a convicting question like, you know, what are you, what are you going to do more in order to impress God and, and impress other people? No, I'm, I'm saying it, if you're here and you're hearing this and you're starting to move closer towards the voice of the Lord, he's already done incredible countercultural things in your life and in your heart. He's already done spirit transforming things inside of you. The question is, are you recognizing that? Are you stopping and thinking, what, Lord, what work are you doing in my heart? What, what more can I put on demonstration for you? Not because everyone will respond. We see in verse 13 that others said, yeah, they're just drunk. This is stupid. No one's buying this, are they? Now, clearly from the text, we know that they're wrong. Peter's going to respond to this. Pastor Gary's going to help us walk through Peter's response next week. But they're, but they're wrong at this. It's not, it's not that they've been drinking. This is a deflection from the conviction that they would otherwise feel if they just looked at the evidence. But this is what we do, right? We, we mock, we attack, we, we cut down when we've been backed into a corner. They're seeing something they can't describe and they're like, eh, just drunk. Well, yeah, so drunk people can speak 13 different languages or whatever it would be fluently. I don't know how many languages would be there. Drunk people can't even speak English fluently when it's happening. And we expect them to pick up other ones. I mean, it's just so dumb. Living life by the, there's a great uh, contrast going on here. Being led by the spirit demonstrates control. Sometimes we think spirit living is just uh, free and floating and, and doesn't really have any structure or anything like that. It's all emotional driven, but, but really spirit led living demonstrates control. In order, where drunkenness shows no self-control, no control of the circumstances at hand. This is why Paul did say, don't be drunk, but be filled with the Spirit. He contrasted the two. Because when the Holy Spirit has control, your life will be a blessing to yourself, and it will also be a blessing to those around you. Why? Because there's, there's some structure there, there's some responsibility there, there's compassion there. All of those things. Spirit filling isn't meant to be, I think, what the church has kind of boiled it down to these days where it's this kind of either feels a little wacky or a little disconnected from reality. It's just this emotional living experience that makes other people a little bit more uncomfortable to be around and can't relate to it and everything. No, instead it reaches out to others with an inviting language that they will understand. Again, not all will accept it. Some are going to say, you're just acting like a drunk person or whatever the accusation will be. But the language reaches the life of the other person and connects to them in ways that will blow their mind. So the questions for us are, do you desire to move, do you desire the move of the Holy Spirit in your life? Are you open to more than just the kind of the edgier or what we might say the spookier things that we attribute to him? Will you let him demonstrate the change in your life that can only come as a result of a surrendered heart to an all-powerful God? Think of your audience. Who's in your life that needs to see this demonstrated power of God through your life? Not through my life, 
But through yours, your change speaks differently to them in that proximity. How foreign has the language of your Christianity become to them? Are you living an experience with God that's so secluded from others that they can't even relate to it, don't have an entry point to it? Maybe you haven't asked the Lord to speak through you in a new relatable way. Maybe we as a church need to understand, to trust and anticipate that, that a harvest of whatever proportion the Lord wants is on the way. Do we regularly wait on him in anticipation of his powerful moving? Or are we preoccupied with other things? And what shift could we make in our worlds this week that would put us in an active anticipation of God's work through us personally? Rather than just paying the bills, satisfying the demands, getting a little bit of entertainment and joy along the way, what if we really said to ourselves, Lord, I want to set myself apart. I really want to be used differently by you. I'm not going to try to explain how the Holy Spirit's going to move. I'm not going to try to anticipate when he's going to arrive in that filling aspect. I just want to be ready for it. I'm preparing myself for that filling as I'm continually filled by you. And then watch him go to work in your life and then have others around you respond in a way that they see the power of God moving in a way that they can relate to and are inspired to change and maybe even hear the voice of God in their life. Would you please stand? Let's close our time in prayer. Lord God, there's so much truth you've given to us in your word. And yet you've maintained aspects of mystery that cause us to wonder if we were supposed to have all the answers or maybe there's parts of this that we just suspend and say, you've got this and you'll make it clear to us on the other side of glory. So Lord, in this discussion of the mystery of the moving of your spirit, we just know that the calling that we have is to surrender to it. And to be ready in anticipation that you do what you want to do in the lives of your servants, in the lives of your children. We can't control the outcomes. We can't control the impact that it will have on those around us. But Lord, we long for it. We want to see the fruit, the harvest of many souls coming to you. And so, Lord, if you'd use our lives in that endeavor and and edge our culture and our community just a little bit closer to surrendering to you, Lord, we'd be grateful just to know that we are a part of your plan. So God, I pray that you'd transform homes as they go back to their regular existence after this morning's service. I pray that you would transform workplaces. I pray that you would transform our own individual hearts as we make ourselves dedicated to you. Blow through our souls, Lord, like a mighty rushing wind. Move your spirit in each and every one of us. It's in your name we humbly pray. Amen.